This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers is your one-stop shop to level up your skills. These episodes are a great way to get a preview of the fascinating subjects and knowledge from my guests, but if you want to build a deeper understanding and practical skills that will serve you on your regenerative journey, then you should check out their titles like Coppice Agroforestry, The Book of Nature Connection, Practical No-Till Farming, Wild Plant Culture, and so many more. They've got audio, digital, and hard copy books so that you can choose your favorite format. Find it all now at NewSociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So in my work with farmers and clients, I've always looked for the leverage points where small actions can lead to the largest changes and progress. Where is it that a beginner or a novice can invest some resources and make big leaps rather than burning out for small results? In fact, as I'm in the early stages of renovating my own house and farm, this is a source of constant reflection for me as well. Now, this line of thinking has led me to focus a lot on water, since basically all life is dependent on it, and if you can keep your landscape hydrated, you can massively increase the living capital potential regardless of what you're producing or what ecosystem you inhabit. Another leverage point that I've become increasingly focused on, thanks to the work of Julia Dakin and Joseph Lofthouse of the Going to Seed organization, is that of land race gardening and plant breeding. Now, I won't give away too much because we'll go deeper into it in the episode, but the broad concept is, why go through all the effort of trying to adapt the conditions of your environment, your soil, your water access, and other conditions, in order to grow plants that were either grown in greenhouses or completely distinct environments, when you could instead breed resilient and thriving cultivars that are adapted to your specific growing conditions? So in order to shed light on this ancient concept, today is Julia Dakin. Julia is a food and seed producer in Mendocino County, California. She has been involved in agriculture for most of her life and has devoted the past few years to growing market crops and teaching the benefits of seed saving, local adaptation, and genetic diversity. For the last year, she's been collaborating with Joseph Lofthouse to create the course Land Race Gardening. And over the last six months, she co-founded an organization called Going to Seed, whose mission statement is inspiring a shift in agriculture towards adaptation, diversity, and community. Going to Seed now offers free seed contributed from growers in the Land Race Gardening Network, as well as free online courses. More recently, Julia has been working on the new online course together with collaborators in southern Mexico called Center of Origins, Sustainable Farming Methods in Southern Mexico. And in today's interview, Julie and I will go over her adapted definition of what land race gardening actually means and the research epiphany during the pandemic that transformed her understanding of the conditions needed to grow the most nutrient-dense food. From there, we go into the practical steps on how to get started with your own land race breeding trials and how to select for the traits that you want to favor over time. We also cover the easiest vegetables to get started with, how this can work for people with tiny gardens, and some of Julia's own learnings from her early trials in growing her own tailored plants on her farm. Julia is also part of the Regenerative Skills Discord server, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode, so you now have the opportunity to ask her your own questions directly through this podcast community. Anyway, with all of that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Julia Dakin. 
Well, hey, Julia, thanks so much for taking time today. It's a pleasure to get to speak with you. How are you doing today? I am doing great, thanks. And it's it's raining hard. I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm in California, so it's been raining constantly. I heard about that. Congratulations. We're going on through a drought on our side in Spain, so send some of that rain our way if you get a chance. <laughs> And so yeah. with all of these new changes, especially in the climate, this kind of brings us to what we're going to be talking about today, and that's land-race gardening and land-race plant breeding. And before we go deeper into the subject, can you tell me what the definition of that is for those who are listening? Yeah, well, usually I talk about, you know, deep cultural roots to an area, um, to a community, the high genetic diversity, but I I wanted to try a different definition out on you, which is um, land races are really what sets them apart and what sets, you know, the, the growing system apart is a mindset shift. And that mindset shift is towards adaptation to a particular area and community over time. And the more typical way that we grow, at least the way I grew up growing and even in regenerative agriculture is sort of a mindset shift of buying seeds every year and adapting the environment to fit that crop so you could actually produce a harvest. So I think there's really there's really the biggest difference is is that mindset shift. That's really interesting. And it makes perfect sense when you say it that way, that why would you spend all of the energy and the time to adapt an environment, which is much harder to work with, to the genetics of perhaps your annual seeds, when you can adapt the genetics of those seeds over time to actually fit with the environment that you're working with? Is that the general logic behind it? Yeah, exactly. Right. So as you know, the climate is changing and our crops are struggling, I think it's it's more and more important because not only do we have to adapt to our own challenges, you know, the, the pests and diseases we have in our in our backyard or the early frost, we also have to adapt to a climate that's changing every year. So we need more resilient crops that, you know, will really adapt with the climate and with us. I completely agree. And, you know, I've, like I said before, I've, I've heard some of your interviews before and it all just makes so much sense, but we'll, we'll go into this deeper now. Like, how did you first get involved or interested in land-race gardening? Well, I'd never heard of it before two years ago, so it's not something I've been involved with very long. Um, I was a farmer, and I was really interested in nutrient density, but also um, reducing inputs. You know, our whole agricultural system is really dependent on synthetic nitrogen and plastics and soil tests. And I was doing a lot of, you know, um, I had a big focus on soil and soil tests and remineralizing, you know, as I think a lot of um, farmers do. And it was just bothering me because I knew that most of the world doesn't have access to this kind of technology and these kind of inputs, even if it's, you know, a small amount of calcium or boron. It's not the way I wasn't I wasn't convinced by it. Um, and I was also wanting to increase the nutrient density of my food. So I at some point, this was in a, the deep, dark COVID winter of two years ago, I read a report sort of to confirm my um, opinion that, and what I think most people's opinions are, that healthy soil and regenerative practices increase produce quality. So the healthier our soil, the healthier our food. And this was a report put out by the uh, Bionutrient Food Association. 
And it was a fantastic data set. So they had crop samples from all over the world, but along with those crop samples, they had soil samples of where that crop was grown and cultural practices. Are you irrigating, cover crops, compost? Um, and they also had crop samples or you know food samples from grocery stores. So they combined all this data, wrote a report, um, and there, the, at the end, you know, throughout the report, I was getting a little bit more worried and, you know, what, what I thought they should be saying, they weren't quite saying yet. And at the end of the report, they said that there is no uh, relationship that we, that we could find between healthy soil and healthy food. The, the data is all over the place. So I just said that, that can't be, let me get my hands on that data. I will, I will figure this out because I know this is true. This is what, you know, everybody says. Um, so I did get my hands on that data and I spent a few weeks, you know, everything was canceled so I could. Uh, and I, I learned how to do pivot tables and scatter graphs and I really got, you know, <laughs> deep into this data. <laughs> And so I came to a similar conclusion, you know, that mineral mineral levels in the crop don't correlate or have no relationship with minerals in the soil. So for example, the calcium level in your tomato had no relationship to the calcium level in the soil. So maybe, you know, the odd one does, but as a general rule, a pattern, there was no pattern. So higher calcium levels in the soil doesn't equate to anything in that tomato. And that was across all the mineral, different minerals and across all the different species. So that caused me to really rethink everything I thought I knew. Yeah. And so where did you find these correlations? Where did you find some of the, the similarities between the nutrient density and environmental conditions? Or were there none to be found? there weren't any patterns um, for environmental conditions or growing practices either. And I don't wanna say that there are none or there haven't been since, um, but this is just what caused me to start thinking outside and reading outside the box that you know I had been in. So I started finding patterns when I started looking, sorting by variety. Um, and there was giant, there were giant differences. You know, you could have one lettuce that had 200 times more potassium or antioxidants than another head of a lettuce. So um, when, when you started sorting by variety, you, you could see patterns, um, you know, certain varieties as a general rule might have 50 to 60 times more calcium than another kind of calcium irrelevant of where they were grown. And I have read more since, and I do believe that, you know, healthy soil can increase your nutrient density, maybe by a factor of zero to 25%, or maybe more sometimes. Um, it's hard, it's hard to find too many patterns. But when you're talking about a 200 times difference in differences between varieties, that's, that's a um, 20,000%, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't talk about it in regenerative agriculture. And I, and I love the focus on soil. It's important, you know, we should worry about how we're growing and the, the health of the soil, but I just don't think it should be the only thing. Um, and so that's kind of what got me started on like, what are the genetics and how do I proceed from here? And what do I do with my, my life now that I figured out that what I was doing before really was 
was maybe 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 not important, but really missing the big picture. Sure. And it sounds like you zeroed in on what we often refer to as like an 80-20 principle. You can make some difference. You can do some good with soil health practices and maybe some nutritional supplements, basically. But the genetic information within a seed or a plant is going to have a very outsized effect on the nutrient density, the mineral uptake of the food that we eat in comparison to those other practices. That's where we're at? Yeah, you're exactly right. I hadn't thought of the 80-20 rule in this case. Um, but yeah, one one more thing that to consider is is sort of, you know, we've we've heard that o- over the last 50 years, our nutrient density has declined. And it really has. I'm not arguing with that at all. Um, but uh, so during that time, when maybe there has been soil erosion, our farming practices have changed. Consider how the breeding practices have changed and the green revolution and how much that, you know, we've been breeding for yields, for shelf life, for all these things that have zero correlation with the health of the food we eat and the flavor, you know, flavor and nutrient density really go along with each other. So you can, you can taste it in the tomatoes that we buy. You certainly can. And there are, like you said, there's so much evidence of how, farming practices have become massively industrialized since the Green Revolution. And the ones that we more often see are the land management practices, tillage, chemical use, that's easier to see. What we don't often recognize is the breeding practices and the traits that are selected for the seeds that are grown all the time. That's much harder to see with the eye. And that might be having the biggest outsized effect on the flavor the color, well, certainly the massive reduction in varieties available even. And how can we recover that? I mean, there are efforts, but can can people do this themselves? Yeah, so if if you're like me and went through that data, I think most people would, would then be like, well, heirlooms, obviously they, by definition, haven't been modified the way these other hybrids or other crops have. Um, so I, you know, went down that route for a bit and I had, you know, I was a farmer and I had farmer friends. So, um, talking to people and considering growing heirlooms is like my strategy was problematic because heirlooms tend to, in a lot of cases, I don't want to say every case, uh, a lot of them are really workhorse varieties, um, but they tend to be more susceptible to disease and tend to have lower yield. So consider I don't know if you guys have the brandywine tomato. It's delicious, probably very nutrient dense, um, but it's often dead by midsummer because of disease. So that wasn't really a route that I could go down. But that reading about that more and thinking about that caused me to just like wonder why why are these heirlooms? Why why does this problem exist? And do I have to become a plant breeder? So I didn't want to become a plant breeder. It doesn't suit my personality type. Um, but it did cause me to learn more about heirlooms and the problems and and really learn about inbreeding depression and genetic diversity and sort of why this purity culture that we have um, is, I mean, heirlooms are important to a lot of people. They're an important vessel of diversity and history. They come at a cost. And I don't think that a lot of gardeners and farmers really know that cost. Yeah. It seems to really go in line with the new definition you're trying out of land race gardening of how 
the adaptation to place and the appropriate, I guess, uh, growth and I mean, yeah, really adaptation and resilience is what you're going for with this breeding program. And the way that we've moved away from that is by breeding for yield, by breeding for aesthetics as much as anything. And even in the case of heirlooms, like you were talking about, they may have had some great traits, but they're still homogenized to a point and sent everywhere, though they may have originally only been adapted to a certain place. And now those conditions are not conducive or the pest pressure there is not conducive for them to thrive. And so what other options are there then? So I was wondering the same thing. I was really stuck, as you can see at that point. This is still a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago at this point. And I just stumbled on a book <clears throat> called Land Race Gardening. You know, I just was reading constantly to try to figure out my place in agriculture. And uh, Joseph Lofthouse is the author. And it's written in a way that's really approachable, approachable, really empowering. And I realized that a, I don't have to grow heirlooms. I don't have to grow hybrids and depend on seed companies and how they're breeding. And I don't have to become a plant breeder because, yeah, as we said, I didn't want to. Um, I can still increase my nutrient density of my crops. I can grow, I can grow less, you know, um, <clears throat> use less inputs, all those things that I had been looking for, adapt to climate change uh, without sort of falling into those choosing those things, either, you know, hybrid heirlooms, open pollinated varieties, or becoming a plant breeder. So land races were that solution. And that really changed my life. I realized that I could solve all these problems at once and also empower gardeners all over the world to, to you know, see the bigger picture and choose seeds that really they could they could control and adapt to their locations and increase their nutrient density without depending on labs and GMOs and you know all the all the ways that people typically think of how we're going to solve the the food and climate crisis. Well and since then you've gotten pretty deep into this and you've worked closely now with Joseph on uh, what's the name of your organization again? It is called Going to Seed. And yeah, this is a new organization. Originally, we were just, um, it was just an online course. And since then, we've evolved into having a seed sharing platform, as well as some other projects where we're developing, um, we're, you know, working on some grants for farmers so that we can help farmers make the transition as well. Um, the seed exchange platform is is really mostly available just in the U.S., but it's pretty exciting for, for those of you who are, who are here. You can go to Going to Seed, and we've collected seeds from gardeners all over the U.S. that have been in our program. They've sent in seeds for their best and most delicious and earliest crops, and we've mixed those and made those available according to, according to type, so not according to variety. There's high genetic diversity. And so it's it's really exciting. We're in a kind of a, a growth phase of moving from an online course community to uh, a nonprofit. That's very exciting. Now, let's take a step back, because I remember you said you were not trying to be a plant breeder when you got into this. How is this any different from breeding plants or being a plant breeder? You make that distinction? So I think when people 
um, think about plant breeders, it's really controlled crosses. So you want to do variety trials. You want to only let certain plants cross with each other. And that really doesn't fit with my personality. I, I want to, you know, trust the plants and let, <laughs> let them cross how they want and, and select the best. So there is a lot of observation involved, but I am not a controlling person. I don't want to control my plants either. So within certain limits, I really encourage my crops to cross-pollinate that increases their, their vigor and their ability to adapt and then see which ones are the healthiest, the most delicious, and choose those seeds. So it's really um, going from this maybe control and purity mindset towards the land race mindset of allowing nature to have more of a voice, to have each farmer and gardener have more of a voice and allow the evolution of, of the, that crop. I really like this concept because I'm also not meticulous enough to get into the, the detailed control as required for plant breeding, but it does make so much sense to me that plants have enough intelligence, maybe not in the same ways that we think of it in the animal kingdom, but certainly the ability and the self-determination to interbreed with other relative crops, to create the conditions for their own survival and their own proliferation. And there are some things that we can do to help that along and then select the ones that perform the best based on our criteria. So let's go into the actual skills, the how-to of this stuff. How can people get started with land race gardening? So the first thing is, is about saving seeds. And, you know, you, you can save your own seeds, especially if there's no one around you growing in this way. But really, it's about saving local seeds. So you want to involve your neighbors and involve local farmers if you can. Um, so it's saving seeds and being willing to accept some diversity. So you're not going to have squash that all look like the seed, the parent plants that you grow. And that really, that's an important part because you can't have evolution or certainly not as easily um, if you don't have diversity. So you need to save seeds, um, be happy with, I should say, embrace diversity um, and be, be able to encourage selection by the local east ecosystem. So that's allowing, you know, pests or or bugs or disease to really take out part of your crop. And as long as you have diversity, that's okay. You have to be able to let it go. And that can be really hard for people, I think. So, um, so the first year you would collect different seeds. You obviously don't have seeds that you've been saving locally and you can get those from seed catalogs. They can be heirlooms um, and you want to plant them all together. You can not worry about variety, just let them go. There's going to be no variety trials here. So you don't even have to have plant tags just as long as you know, this is, you know, these are, this is, these are my tomatoes. Um, so then the first year is really, is really easy. Just don't, necessarily coddle them. You want some to survive. So if you're having everything die, then maybe you should step in. But often it's just, you know, selecting, saving the seeds from the plants that are producing seeds at the end of the year. Um, and then the second year, you do the same thing. 
plant your seeds that you have saved from the year before. And you have a significant step forward because everything that you're planting, you know, has already produced seeds the year before. So it can move quite quickly. And then if you have a good harvest, it depends on where you are. Sometimes that process can take a couple of years, uh, especially if you live in a really challenging area, like, you know, super early frost and you're needing to really move your genetics quickly in a way that they can survive. But often second year, you'll have an excellent harvest and you can start using flavor as a guide or whatever it is that you really want. Um, so the third year, you really start focusing on <clears throat> flavor and traits that you love. So that really varies based on who you are and who your community is and what your community wants. Those, that's the general idea. There are some more, you know, finer points as we get into it that, you know, people will need to start worrying or considering. Well, I like what you said at the beginning there too, of like having to overcome the mindset of having some maybe disease or insects or conditions start to take out plants. And if you're used to coddling them, if you're used to just keeping everything on life support to try and get any kind of yield that you, you're able to, it is difficult to step out of that. But the way that it helped me to understand this was that those disturbances are actually helping you in the selection process. It's making your work easier, maybe just not this year, <laughs> right? And, 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 and if you collaborate with the forces that are in your garden already, then, you know, you will reap the benefits perhaps in one or two more seasons. Yeah, it can be really hard, but it's also really, really relaxing. So three years ago, I had tons of tomatoes, right? And I had a lot of disease because I don't live in a prime um, tomato growing area. And I spent so much time looking up, you know, what kind of mildew or blight or early or late or, you know, what kind of what's happening. Um, and it was stressful. Uh, and the year after, you know, I read Landry's Gardening and I decided to implement this. It was just so different. I could just you know, see this happening and, and see the differences. Some were just fine and some were dead. Um, and it's really obvious and really just relaxing is the, is the biggest way I can describe it is that you can just let it go. And those seeds that you end up with are so much more valuable than the tomatoes that you lost because you didn't, you know, do things that you might normally do. So it really is more of a, a long-term thinking. And in some cases, if you expect your whole crop or most of your crop to die, you might want to have a separate kitchen garden that first year where you really know that you will have tomatoes for your salad. Yeah, fair enough. It's the thing is you could do multiple things. You could have your test in your breeding plots and you could have the ones where you you are used to the conditions and you know how to manage it in a way at least to get the yield that you're expecting. Now let's go deeper into the selection process. So, you know, maybe in the first year it is easy. It's just a matter of what survived with little care and got past the blights and the, and the insects. But as we start to move forward, it's not just a matter of what survives or maybe you have a whole lot of options right from the first year. What are some other things you should be looking for as traits in order to save those seeds and keep them going? So a lot of people have short seasons and that might be because of drought or because of frost or because 
of, you know, pest attacks that typically come at a certain time. So even if you live in a place clim climatically um, longer season, you might still want shorter seasons. So you could be selecting the earliest or you could be selecting the ones that do best with the really hot summer sun. You know, all those environmental conditions are really important and those really, really vary. So I would say um, just consider your own challenges. For me, I have cold, cold summer, so I'm right on the coast. So my average high is 58 degrees and I'm selecting for what can mature in a cold summer. So that really varies, but the mindset is really, is really the same. Um, so besides those environmental ones, then typically it's flavor. And beyond that, some people love a certain color. And as long as you can allow diversity and also select for something specific like that, it's okay. So in most cases, you want to be able to allow different colors of something like winter squash you want all the different colors. But if you want green squash, then you still have to allow diversity somewhere because once you start being too selective, then you start getting some inbreeding depression over, over the years. Got it. Okay. So we are looking for traits that we want, but we don't want to be so narrow in our selection that they don't get a chance to express themselves and adapt over time as conditions change as well. Exactly. So if you have one delicious, delicious, whatever fruit that it is, and you're tempted to only save those seeds because there are a couple hundred, you should avoid that <laughs> um, and save quite a few of those seeds. Maybe 50% of your seeds will, will be from that squash or that tomato, but you really want to collect a diversity because that's not doing so is a, called a genetic bottleneck. And that's what's been happening. That's the reason a lot of our current varieties are somewhat inbred or display those signs of inbreeding depression because that's happened to them in their ancestors so many times. Sure, sure. And how about keeping seeds from one year and introducing them perhaps after skipping a season or two? Is that also a good way to keep that diversity alive? Or are you trying to use up all of your seeds from each season and just see what comes out of it? Yeah, that's a great way to do it. And um you should always save enough seeds because you may have a crop failure and then you don't want to go back to square one either. So there are a few reasons to save your seeds and obviously some seeds store longer than others, but um, it's a really good practice to be able to reintroduce genetics from a couple of years ago as a way to sort of encourage that diversity you might've had a couple of years ago and maybe you don't have so much anymore, but also for your seed security. And so how meticulous are you when it comes to saving seeds about labeling and putting in a lot of details in your organization? Or does it get easier with this style of, of plant breeding, essentially? It gets so much easier. So something that that Joseph has talked about is he was spending more time labeling and keeping notes than he was gardening at some point that really bothered him. So now he has um, his jar of beans and it might have a thousand different, you know, ancestors and they're beans and that's okay. So I, I do something similar where I have a few things that, you know, I want to be able to separate and, and control a little bit more in terms of, I might mix them eventually, but I want to do that 
carefully and not necessarily all together. So I would say for me, it, it went from keeping variety separate and that being pretty time consuming with all with the labels and planting and all the ways that you're keeping track of things to um, 80% less. So I do track a few things. I had somebody that just sent me about 20, 20 different tomato populations so I can grow them and find the ones that survive my blighty summer. Um, so I'm going to keep those separate. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I have mixed all my summer squash together. I have <laughs> mixed all my other tomatoes together. So I'm keeping very little records of that. But I don't want to say that you're not keeping track of things over the summer. There's a lot of observation involved during the growing season. And you might flag, you know, live plants that are exceptional in some way that you want to, you know, keep track of when the time to save seeds comes. Sure. Now, from my own experience of dabbling in this, my problem is that I've hardly ever stayed in a place more than a couple of seasons to get longer term results. And then when I move, I often lose my seeds in the process. There are varieties of plants that interbreed quite well. And then there are others that are very difficult to cross. If you're just getting into this for the first time, where should someone start to maybe get an early win? And where would you graduate to as like an intermediate or more advanced land race gardener? So the crops that are the easiest are the outcrossers and those are often insect pollinated. So all the cucurbits, squash, melon, cucumbers um, are super easy. And the only thing with, with squash to be concerned about is you might've been warned not to save your squash seeds because you will get bitter, bitter squash. Um, and the only way that can happen is if you're also growing decorative gourds and you're, you have a seed project in the, in the pepo species. So, um, for squash, melons, and cucumbers, totally recommend those. And then corn is also easy. And for corn, you would want to keep your sweet corn and your flower corn separate. And spinach is, is quite easy. And the other things that are a little bit harder are tomatoes because they tend to self-pollinate. So they, they do cross about 3% of the time. Um, potatoes can be a little trickier. You're growing from true seed and not from tuber. And I have other options. You know, another species that can be tricky are the brassicas because the species is so big. You know, you don't want to limit yourself to only cabbage. Um, (laughs) So uh, another thing to worry about in the brassica family is the cytoplasmic male sterility. So if you are buying seeds from Johnny's catalog, for example, or somewhere else, a lot of these F1 hybrid seeds have the male sterile gene. And so that is something you really should be aware of and avoid F1 hybrids in your starting mix, or as you add some crops over the the years, um, just avoid those those F1 hybrids and focus on heirlooms and open pollinated varieties. So some other ones that, you know, are, are great um, to grow would be dry beans. They do have a lower, um, oh, I should say fava beans and pole beans specifically. Bush beans are a little bit harder. So they have a higher outcrossing rate. 
And another one that has a higher outcrossing rate in the nightshade family are the sweet peppers or peppers in general, but again, keeping your sweet and hot peppers separate. Sweet peppers and hot peppers cross about 20% of the time. So you still get a pretty high crossing rate. And I have a list that I can share with you of the, the easy, medium, and hard um, that people can refer back to. And it's also um, in our course. Oh, that would be great to see. I could post that on the show notes for this and people could get a taste before definitely joining the course, which I will recommend later as well. So if you are trying to keep things separate, is it really just a matter of dif distance or are there some other techniques to avoid breeding with things like, let's say you're sweet and your hot peppers that you wouldn't want to it's, if you don't have a huge amount of space to work with? Yeah, some, um, you know, rows of flowers to distract the bees, pollinate <laughs> um, flowers in between, you know, they're, they're not going to fly from your hot pepper block over another block of flowers to your sweet pepper block. And usually what you see in our, in our seed catalogs and recommendations, they have really, really extreme pollination distance requirements. And typically if you separate by, you know, 30 feet or so, then you may only have, you know, zero to 1%. And that is not usually okay in the <clears throat> heirloom world where purity and staying true to type is super important. Um, but in this case, you know, if you have 1% crossing between your sweet and your hot corn, or your, sorry, your um, flower corn and your sweet corn, then that's okay. I mean, there's, there's some diversity that is fine. Um, and that, you know, will benefit your crop. So I would say don't don't worry about the typical pollination distance requirements. You can be a little bit more relaxed on those. Okay. And when it comes to doing this at a farm scale, because that's really the context you're coming from, we're moving outside of the garden. Is it still viable to be breeding these seeds over time at the quantities that you need to run a profitable enterprise? So it's, that's one reason why we started with gardeners is because farmers have time constraints. They have lower risk tolerance. They have to be more conservative. Um, and we do have some farmers in the program and we want to sort of de devote more resources to helping them. But farmers are a good example of why it can make sense to involve the community so that they're not the ones saving every single seed. And one thing that I'm working on more this year, and I've already done a couple, is going to local communities and collaborating with them to develop their own land races in their own community. So in the, the last one I did in Northern California, the gardeners were, were really excited about supporting their farmers because there were two farmers in the room that said, I, I don't have time for this. Uh, and the gardeners were, you know, like, yes, we're going to help you. We're going to save those seeds. And, you know, people want to support local food production. That's super important. Um, but the other thing is that when you have more security, you know, higher disease resistance, more um, more plant bigger because you have more diversity, you, the farmers are going to have less disease, they're going to have less loss, they're going to have, you know, less weeding pressure because their plants will be more vigorous. So there's a there's that other trade off in that and also in the savings from not having to buy all their seed every year. So um, I would say it's not all all bad. And there's some really 
important economic and, and other considerations for farmers. Um, but the biggest, I think that the biggest obstacle to a farmer is that not all customers would be okay with the high genetic diversity. I think a lot would, and they're looking for that flavor and they want to trust the farmer and like trust these better growing practices. But in some areas of the world or country, I think that diversity will be a challenge. Sure. And I think the markets right now are not very conducive to breeds and varieties that people are not accustomed to or that they don't recognize. I mean, we've gotten used to at this point, very, very low diversity in our grocery stores, maybe a little bit more in our farmers markets. But even there, they're using the same production seeds that any other conventional farmer is a lot of the time, maybe with the exception of, of heirlooms. What does this do to the food culture as it starts to shake up what you're comfortable with and what you recognize? I hope that we really can shake up the food culture and it will require a lot, a lot of marketing, a lot of education. And I think that's a big next step and something that's really important. Like why is diversity good in our food system and why should we search it out and support it? I think is a, is a great topic and subject for a big marketing campaign. But it really could focus, you know, it really could encourage people to consider flavor and nutrient density more than just the visual aspects and the shelf storage and demands more from the food system. And I, I think that would really be empowering to everything and help us adapt to climate change. I completely agree. I mean, I've been traveling for pretty much my entire adult life. And even in just that short period of time, about 15, 17 years, I have gone to so many different parts of the world where you find essentially the exact same food as you were finding on a different continent. And that is depressing. It should not be that way. It never has been in the past. And this homogenization of not only what people expect in, in their, their culinary diversity is even further bottlenecked in what's available to growers as far as seeds and varieties that they have some confidence that they can sell. And I'm definitely on the side of bringing diversity and indigenous food systems back, but it has to start from, from the seeds. And you know, hopefully these types of initiatives can bring about an understanding and a respect for what has been lost up until this point and how much work it's going to take to get it back. And it's only going to start to get better if people participate in every different growing region that that they are because that that's really where all of this diversity came from in the first place yeah that's really important and it, and it's going to take such a big mindset shift just because we just have been told so many times don't save seeds they might be contaminated or cross-pollinated and you're kind of having to um get beyond so many things that people have been told their whole lives and that is going to be a big challenge and one that we really need to tackle. But there's so much opportunity. So I hope we can really confront it and work on it and develop these locally adapted, you know, genetically diverse and community selected pop crop populations all over. I think in, in other parts of the world, there is more of a culture around um, local crops and saving their local seeds. But certainly where I am in California, those old varieties, they don't 
they don't exist anymore. So it's really like, how do we rebuild them? And how do we change our mindset so that we even recognize that that's good? Well, so Juliet, you said you were doing the research and just coming into this around the pandemic. That was only three years ago, maybe less, depending on how long you were researching. What are some things that you have learned yourself outside of the books, but through your own trials and just the last couple of seasons of doing your own land race gardening? So one thing that's been really cool for me to see in action as a as a farmer doing it is how different um, genetically distinct, but in the same species, plants grow and are susceptible to nutrient deficiencies. So for example, I grew potatoes from seed and I had them all mixed up. So I could have 10 different potato plants and eat in the same, you know, same water, same soil, same climate, same everything, same species. Um, and they were so different. One could be yellow and dying and the next one could be, you know, big and happy. And so I realized that, you know, I may have really challenging soil. It's high aluminum, it's acidic, it's sandy. It's, you know, I have all these things that um, are challenges and those are, that makes it even cooler to see how some just thrive and maybe it's 10%. They, you know, love my soil and love my climate. And um, <clears throat> it's fantastic to see it in action. So that's been my biggest takeaway. Like I, I, I knew the theory of it, right. But I, I hadn't seen it. And I just have a lot of photos now to show that this is, this is a big thing. And a lot of farmers plant their beans, maybe they don't do well. And then they think that, oh, beans don't do well here when really they just didn't have enough diversity to see those differences. So that's been the main thing. And also, um, I think that a lot of people are like me. It just like, you don't, you don't even think of going beyond the, the choices that you're given and see catalogs until someone explains it. And they're like, oh my God, you're right. Why did, why didn't I think of that? So easy. So that's been cool to see too, that, you know, I'm pretty typical of, of, <laughs> of people that just couldn't see it. Yeah. Well, and so you're admittedly pretty new at this, but you have been speaking publicly about it for a little while now. You've got the online community in the course. I would imagine that you've probably bumped into or heard from people who've been trying this for quite a while and have shared some of their learnings from perhaps doing this for 10, 20 years. Have there been some cool stories that come out of these forums and these groups from people who bring some of their own experience into the lessons that you help to guide? Yeah, and one big thing, um, is the benefits for gardeners, small space gardeners that feel like they can't save seeds because they don't have those minimum population sizes or they can't because of their space or they can't have the pollination distance requirements. And one story came from Mark Reed, who's been doing this for 10 or uh, he's been saving seed for more like 20 years, but doing land race gardening for the last 11 years. And he said something that I think is probably really typical of, of gardeners is you read these seed saving books and you get discouraged because you don't have you don't have the space and you still want to. You want to save your seeds and not grow, you know, one species or one variety. Um, so it's really liberating for those people, especially to read this and be like, I can actually do it. I don't have to follow all those rules and regulations and sort of 
that freedom has been one consistent benefit that that people have talked about is just like life-changing in that I could stop following all these rules. <laughs> so that's been something I've really appreciated. And I, I appreciate that too. Um, Cause I, I have a big space and Joseph Lofthouse has a big space. And so some of those rules that we break are different than what smaller gardeners can break. And I didn't fully appreciate the differences and the benefits that could come to people who are growing in small spaces. Sure. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm really excited to get started trialing this now that I finally am settled in my own farm. I've been here for a couple months. We're actually a little bit late here in Spain to be starting. A lot of things even get get planted in February. But I was just out today putting up my fences because as much as I'm excited to keep pests and, and disease pressure off my plants, I think it's going to be difficult if the wild boar get in. But as soon as my <laughs> as soon as my fences are up, I'm going to get started with this. And the, the one thing that I'm still not super clear about is where do you start with seeds if all you really have access to at the moment is what you can get from the store? Can you still do this? I mean, you, I remember you said stay away from F1 hybrids, but is there a, are there some that are still decent off the shelf that can get this going? Or do you kind of need to have a network of people who have been doing this for a while to get good seeds to start with? No, for sure. There are a lot of seed companies that are selling heirlooms and open pollinated varieties and just planting those. So you will have those, those varieties, they may be pure in the first year, but by the time you're saving those seeds, they'll already have crossed. So you can get there pretty quickly. And I would just focus on buying seeds from seed catalogs or there's seed exchanges locally that a lot of people have access to or Facebook seed swaps groups. Get those seeds wherever they come from. Focus on ones that you ultimately want as, you know, if they have better flavor or are better in your area. Um, so don't worry too much. I mean, just, just staying away from those F1 hybrids in most cases is the only thing, but that doesn't limit you too much. There's just so many seed companies that are doing a great job. And one of them in the US is is the Buffalo Seed Company. And they may be in the growing for regional markets in the Midwest, but they have really high diversity, a lot of land races. And there are more seed companies like that that are starting to really focus on diversity and grexes and mixes. So don't let the um <clears throat> don't let me scare you into not getting seeds, not buying seeds. Nice. Well, so before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners how they can continue to learn more, join the course and the, the community that you started around this? So we've made it all free. So that's been really nice. There's no barriers for anybody that can't or doesn't want to pay for them. So um, you can visit our website, going to seed.org. And there's courses available from there. The main one is landrace gardening. And there's another one that's going to be interesting for people that are already saving seeds. It's taught by Dr. James White. Um, and it's about how microbes help your crops adapt to local conditions. And then we're about to release another one that focuses on <clears throat> the growing methods of people in Southern Mexico. So that's you know, really kind of highlighting the people that have been growing in this way, saving their own seeds, protecting their seeds from Western kind of encroachment, GMO, um, corn, and they never, they never stopped growing them. So, so in this, you know, in our 
culture, this may be kind of a new thing, but I don't want to say that this is a new mentality. It's just new for, for people that haven't been exposed to it before. So there are indigenous people that are, are growing in this way um, and have been for thousands of years. And we want to really highlight those and, you know, bring those people in as teachers. But right now, Right now, you can take our online course taught by Joseph Lofthouse, and it is fantastic and comprehensive, and there are some other people, too, that we've done interviews with, so at this point, it's it's I feel like it's pretty good, and people have given us really good reviews for it. Oh, that's very exciting, and I'm thrilled to be in this course. I'm really looking forward to diving into it as soon as I start to get my own garden started. Well, Julia, thank you so much for taking time. This is fascinating, and I can't wait to participate more with the community that you've helped to create. And I really look forward to catching up and hearing more about your land race gardening stories as this continues to unfold for you as well. Thank you so much. And that's it's been really fun to talk to you. And I hope to hear from your listeners. I joined your Discord group. So that'll be fun. And I'll, I'll be there for any questions. And I'm sure Joseph would love to hop on too. So oh, I look really? forward to interacting with people there and also through our, our online community. Um, so it'll be great to to have more people in permaculture that are really doing this. Fantastic. Well, I've reached out to Joseph and I'll get him on an episode again too. And we are going to dive deeper into this kind of collectively. And I thank you for joining the Discord. I look forward to being in touch with you on there as well. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right, thanks once again to Julia. Remember that you can find all of the links and resources that we mentioned during this episode now on the show notes at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.